Welcome to tape number five of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with the reading of chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. The design of all the trumpets is to point out the utter destruction of the Roman Empire, Daniel's kingdom of iron, Daniel 2, verse 40. For although from the time of Constantine it assumed the Christian name, it nevertheless continued to be a beast. Of this we shall have cumulative evidence as we progress. The first trumpet began to dem- demolish the fabric of anti-Christian power, and by the fourth the western division was overthrown. For although the northern barbarians under the first, the southern vandals under the second, and the successors of both prevailed to bring down the last of the Caesars, yet the ancient frame of government still subsisted. The political heaven, though shaken, was not yet wholly removed, while the Senate, consuls, and other official dignitaries continued to shine as political luminaries in the firmament of power. But as the last of the Caesars fell from power in the year 476, so the last vestige of imperial dominion in the West was removed in 566, when Rome, the queen of the nations, was by the emperor of the East reduced to the humble condition of a tributary dukedom. Most of the saints had their residence at this time in the nations of Western Europe and Northern Africa, where they were grievously afflicted by the Arian, Pelagian, and other heretics, and also exposed to persecution by the civil powers whom those hierarchs moved to oppress the Orthodox. Consequently, the righteous judgments of God fall first upon the members of the empire. The eastern section, however, is destined to become the special object of the judgments indicated by the succeeding trumpets. However, interpreters differ in detail when explaining the effects produced by the sounding of the first four trumpets. They very generally harmonize in the application of them to the western section of the Roman Empire. The luminaries of heaven are darkened or fall or extinguished while the earth, the sea, and the rivers are correspondingly affected. Now, These are the well-known allegorical representations of divine judicial visitations of guilty communities as we find in the prophetic writings. See, for example, the case of Babylon, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency. 
Isaiah 13, 1 and 10, see also Egypt. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. Verse 13, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Before the fifth angel sounds, a note of warning is given by the ministry of another angel distinct from the seven with the trumpets. He pronounces a woe thrice repeated upon the inhabitants of the earth, indicating that heavier judgments and of longer duration are about to be inflicted. This announcement was intended to excite attention and awful expectation. This angel's message of heavy tidings may be viewed in quite interesting contrast with that of a subsequent angel flying through the midst of heaven. Chapter 14, verse 6. How different, yet harmonious, is the ministry of those heavenly messengers. The first four trumpets, as we have seen, demolished the western division of the Roman Empire. About the middle of the 6th century, this work was brought to completion. Here, for greater clearness, we may be allowed to anticipate by digressing a little. Assuming now what shall afterwards appear to be correct, that the Roman Empire is Daniel's fourth universal monarch and Paul's let or hindrance to the revealing of the man of sin, since the first four trumpets have dismembered that great power, revealing the ten toes, ten horns, or kingdoms, we would expect now to hear of the destruction of the son of perdition. But it is not so. That is to be affected by the vials, chapter 16 as the general and the grand design of the apocalypse is to illustrate the divine government exhibiting the moral world as affecting or affected by the Christian religion it seems good to to the divine author that the destinies of the eastern section of the Roman Empire yet standing where many of the saints reside shall come under review ecclesiastical history treats familiarly of a Greek as well as a Latin church and empire as the trumpets cover the whole time from the opening of the sixth seal to the final throw of the whole fourth monarchy, Daniel 7:26, Revelation 11:15, it follows that the eastern section must be the object of a part of them. Accordingly, the remaining part of the second period, the period of the trumpets, includes the first two of the three emphatically and signified, significantly styled woe trumpets. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torments of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, 
and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. And the signs sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which in the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. The scene of the events announced by the sounding of the first woe trumpet is the Eastern Roman Empire. A variety of symbols is here employed to represent the judgment to be inflicted. The principal agents and events are a star, locust, Apollyon, their king, their depredations, the time of their continuance. Neither Boniface III nor Muhammad answer to the symbol falling star allowing that a star as a symbol may represent a person in either civil or ecclesiastical office no successful aspirants to place of power as both of these were can be here understood obviously degradation and not elevation is intended either dethronement of a prince or apostasy of a theological dignitary must be intended no character in history at the time referred to so well agrees to the symbol of a fallen star as the monk Sergius, S-E-R-G-I-U-S, who is known to have been the co-adjudator of Muhammad. He had been a monk of the Christian sect called Nestorians from Nestorius, N-E-S-T-O-R-I-U-S, their leader. This monk, Sergius, had been excommunicated for heresy and immorality. He was glad to serve the devil as dictator to Muhammad in composing the Koran, which bears internal evidence of having been written by one who was acquainted with the sacred scriptures. When this degraded man had finished his task, he was put to death by his master, lest he should betray the impostor. He opened the bottomless pit from which issued a smoke darkening the whole face of the heavens. The pit is hell whence came the smoke, the diabolical system of delusion. From the same place comes the character afterwards to appear under the aspect of a beast. Chapter 11, verse 7. Locusts constituted one of the plagues of Egypt, and they are the emblem of a destroying army. Exodus 10, 14-19 and Joel 1, 4-6. And this is their import here. They represent the deluded and destructive followers of Muhammad, who in vast multitudes laid waste the nations of Western Asia, Southern Europe, and Northern Africa. The Saracens, S-A-R-A-C-E-N-S, originating in Arabia, the national locality of the literal locust in great multitudes like clouds, laid waste the fairest and most populous portions of the earth for a succession of ages. These symbolic locusts have also the pr property of scorpions, a poisonous reptile, resembling in some degree a lizard combined with a lobster armed with a sting in the end of its tail. Wicked and impenitent men are compared to scorpions, Ezekiel 2.6, but these locusts are under restraint. They are permitted to hurt only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. 
the time of their continuance is five months, of thirty days each, making a hundred and fifty years. A day for a year, Ezekiel 4, verse 6. In the year 606, Muhammad began his imposture by retiring to the cave of Hera, H-E-R-A. In 612, he appeared publicly as the apostle of his new religion at the head of his deluded followers. Between 612 and 762, he and the warlike chiefs who succeeded him overran with terrible destruction Syria, Persia, India, Egypt, and Spain. Although the Saracenic Empire continued for a longer time, yet from this time it lost the disorderly locust character and became a more settled commonwealth. In the year 762, the city of Baghdad was built by one of the caliphs who called it the City of Peace. This put a stop to the devastations of the locust when the empire began to decline. It was foretold, however, that during the time of successful war by these cruel invaders, they would inflict such miseries upon their wretched victims, wretched victims that they would earnestly but vainly desire death to put an end to their exquisite torments. It is farther said that these locusts resembled horses, as indeed they do, especially in their heads. The Arabians excelled in horsemanship, and their chief force lay in cavalry. The crowns upon their heads may refer to the turbans worn by the Arabians as part of their national costume, or to the kingdoms which they subdued. Flowing hair is also characteristic of these people. Their teeth, like those of lions, indicated their strength and fury to destroy. Breastplates of iron, defensive armor, indicate self-protection by the most effectual public measures. The sound of their wings may denote the fury of their assaults and the rapidity of their conquest, but the deadly stings in their tails were their most fatal instruments of torture, symbolizing the poison of their abominable and ruinous religion. Their king is Abaddon, or Apollyon, the destroyer, for so is his name by interpretation both in Hebrew and Greek. He is from the bottomless pit, from hell, the vice-regent of the devil. Muhammad in person and in the person of his official successors will alone answer to this duplicate symbol. This is, without a rational shadow of ground for controversy, the great Eastern Antichrist, sufficiently distinguished from the Western. The Western combination against real Christianity never attained to power by successful conquest of the nation, but on the contrary by chicanery, insidious policy, flattery of princes and priestcraft. This enemy is described with sufficient accuracy and peculiar precision in the subsequent part of the Apocalypse. Prophecy has a determinate meaning, and we are not at liberty to give loose reins to our imagination. Otherwise, we shall bewilder rather than satisfy the devout and earnest inquirer. Verse 12. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Before the time of the sixth trumpet, intimation is given that some pause shall intervene prior to the judgments which are to follow. One woe is past. The object of the first woe is the nominally Christian Roman Empire, which still stands in its eastern section, and is to be totally demolished from the second woe trumpet. For the western section, recovering from the effects of the first four trumpets, is the object of the third and last woe. The man of sin, the little horn of Daniel, is actuating the ten horns to scatter Judah, etc. 
during the time of the Muhammad conquest in the East, by which the whole Roman Empire is ripening for the harvest of the vials of wrath. Verses 13 to 19. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpets, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand and I heard the number of them and thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails for their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. At the sounding of the sixth trumpet, a voice comes from the four horns of the golden altar, the immediate presence of the Almighty. This indicates punishment to be inflicted upon men for corrupting the gospel, similar to the judgment of the fire from the golden censer, chapter 8, verse 5. The effects of the first woe may be supposed to reach from the early part of the 7th century to the latter part of the 13th, the period of Arabian locusts. During the latter part of this time, the Turks were held in check by the Crusaders who strove to wrest the Holy Land from the infidels. The four angels are the four Turkish sultans. The river Euphrates is to be taken in this place literally as designating the geographic the geographical locality of these combined powers which were the instruments employed by the enthroned mediator to demolish the remaining part of the Roman Empire the third part of men the time occupied in this barbarous work of slaughter is an hour a day a month and a year about equal to 30, 391 years or from the year 1281 to 1672 the Western Empire had been overthrown by the first four trumpets, the Eastern nearly ruined under the fifth, and under the sixth it was finally subverted. The numbers which the Turks brought into the field are here said to be 200,000,000, 000, a definite for an indefinite number, as usual, a vast army. And historians tell us that they were, in fact, from four to 700,000, and a large proportion of them cavalry. From the year 1672, one of their own historians dates the decay of the Ottoman Empire. Since that date, the Turkish power is well known to have been straightened by the Russian Empire. These eastern warriors and their horses are described by their military costume and their arms. Fire is red, jacinth, that's J-A-C-I-N-T-H, blue, and brimstone, yellow. The chosen colors of the Ottoman warriors, their military uniform. The heads of their horses, as the heads of lion, denote strength, fierceness, and cruelty. Fire, smoke, and brimstone issuing out of their mouths may be supposed to indicate the employment of gunpowder, first invented about that time as an element of destruction. The commander at the siege of Constantinople is said to have employed cannons, some of which were of such caliber as to send stones of 300 pounds weight. Thus their power was in their mouth but like the locusts they had in their tails power to do hurt 
the deadly poison of the Koran. The Turks left behind them wherever they went as the Saracens had done before the poisonous and ruinous religion of Muhammad, more durable and injurious to men than all their bloody conquests. By this abominable system of delusion, the remains of the Greek church in the eastern division of the Roman Empire were almost extirpated. Christianity was nearly extinguished in that part of the world where the gospel had shone brightly and their Mahometanism, for the reader's benefit, when the references to Mahometanism, it's really modern-day Islam, continues till the present day. Such has been the desolating effect of the sixth, the second woe trumpet. Thus the judge of all the earth punishes impenitent communities. Besides the positive effects of the second woe, we have intimation of some that are negative in the close of this chapter. Verses 20 and 21. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold, and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts the rest of the men that were not killed by these plagues or morally destroyed by becoming Mohammedans or Muslims by the foregoing calamities were not brought to repentance of their evil deeds the population of the Western Latin Empire and nominal Christian Church still persisted in their idolatries and immoralities. Both individually and as associated, they openly violated both tables of the moral law. It is evident from these two verses that the sins enumerated in them were, were the procuring causes of the divine judgment symbolized by the trumpets, the two wolf trumpets, all the trumpets. Yes, including the seventh and last, Professing, professing Christians both in the Greek and Latin churches after all the plagues inflicted by the angels of the past six trumpets continue to this day in the practice of worshipping demons, angels, and saints for which they can produce no better arguments than their pagan predecessors whom the Lord charges with worshipping devils here and elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 10.20 and Psalm 106 verse 37 in their stupid worship of senseless images, consecration of places, who cannot perceive the identity of modern papists and prelates within those portrayed by the pen of inspiration in the passage before us? The horrible murders, massacres, and bloody perse persecutions of the saints are verified in authentic history. Papal bulls, imperial and royal edicts issued against heretics answer to the second part of this awful picture. Then follow sorceries, plainly pointing out pretended revelations, false miracles. To these are to be added fornications, corporal and spiritual, in a mass of superstitions added to or supplanting divine ordinances, together with vows of celibacy, monkeries, and nunneries, followed by public license of brothels. And finally, thefts. By these are to be understood the illegal exactions and oppressive impositions by which the nations of Christendom have been plundered of their revenues to enrich the lordly hierarchy of apostate Christendom. This state of things still continues after the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, and no evidence of repentance. Who can doubt that the same community is yet to be visited with the third woe? Surely the Lord may justly still say, for three transgressions and for four, 
of Antichrist, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. The Eastern Church, in which the first corruptions prevailed, was punished by the first woe of the Saracens. And this not producing repentance, her heir was completely, her ruin was completed by the second woe of the Ottomans. So, when God judges, he will overcome. Therefore, the Western Church, still persisting in her abominations without repentance, shall be destroyed by the third woe. Let not the pious reader suppose that by these penal inflictions on churches the Church of Christ is to perish. No, no. But, on the contrary, their overthrow is subservient to her preservation. This also will appear with increasing evidence as we proceed with our meditations on this instructive book. In the meantime, it may be well to remark here at the close of those woes which developed the rise and progress of Mohammedanism, that the creed of this religious sect is substantially the same as that of those Christians called Sassinians. Both presumptuously and arrogantly claim to be the worshippers of the one God, commonly called Unitarians. This is one of the depths of Satan. All who worship, as well as believe in, three co-equal divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, believe in and worship one God, and in this sense are Unitarians, the only scriptural Unitarians. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. 1 John 2.23 And the same is true of such who have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Acts 19, verse 2. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son, a deceiver and an Antichrist. It is doubtless in view of these soul-ruining heresies that the beloved disciple tendered the caution, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5:21. We would expect the tenth chapter to begin with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, but we find it is not so. Indeed, we shall not find any direct intimation of the work of the seventh angel till we come to the fourteenth verse of the eleventh chapter. The sixth trumpet continues to reverberate throughout Christendom for centuries, and during the intermediate time our attention is called to another scene which the Lord Jesus deemed necessary as preparatory. Chapter 10 This chapter and the greater part of the next, from the first to the fourteenth verse inclusive, is of the nature of a parenthesis. For the 15th verse of the 11th chapter evidently connects the narrative or series of events with the 9th chapter. The 9th chapter closes with an intimation of impenitence on the part of those who had been punished by the plagues of the preceding trumpets. Then it follows, as we have seen, that there are to be still farther visited, excuse me, they are still to be farther visited by the infliction of the closing judgment symbolized by the 7th trumpet. The immediate design, therefore, of interpreting the natural order of the narrative is to place before us the actual conditions of society when the seventh trumpet sounds. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he, had, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. The majestic description of this angel agrees to no creature. 
It is proper to God-man only. It is partly the same display of the mediator, mediator's glory which we had in chapter 1, verse 15. Especially is this the case as to his face, his feet, and his voice. The rainbow is still the sign of the everlasting covenant. In wrath he remembers mercy. This book differs from the sealed book as a part from the whole, or a codicil from the will to which it is appended. Also, it is distinguished from the former as being little and open. They do therefore greatly err here who would make this little book comprehend all the remaining part of the Apocalypse, which would make it larger than the sealed book. The little book is open because it is part of the large one from which the last seal had been removed by the mediator. But another reason why the little book is represented as being open is the fact that the most of the events to which it refers had transpired prior to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. That trumpet had been without its appropriate object as presented in any preceding part of the prophecy. To present that object is the special, de special design of the little book. All the events predicted in this book of Revelation are not successive in the order of time, but some are coincident, and the inspired writer of the Apocalypse on several occasions goes back, as we shall see, in order to explain at greater length what had been but briefly and obscurely narrated. The angel set his feet upon the world as his footstool, by which position is emblematically signified his sovereign dominion over sea and earth, and this is agreeable to his own plain teaching in the days of his public ministry, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28:18. He trod upon the billows of the ocean literally in the state of his humiliation, giving thereby evidence of his power over the mystical waters, the tumults of the people. During the popular commotion signified by the trumpets, he said to the raging passions of men and their towering ambition as to the waves of the sea, Hitherto shall ye come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. And whether the nations of Christendom are at war or in peaceful tranquility, he reigns over them as their rightful sovereign, his right foot on the sea and his left on the earth. In possession of universal dominion he speaks with authority, as when a lion roareth. Although a lamb slain, the victim of our sins, he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, ruling over his people, restraining and conquering his own and their enemies. The seven thunders give a premonition of tremendous judgments, the import of which is to be sealed up until it is demonstrated to all the world by the seventh trumpet and vial. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over at this time and continue listening on side two. Chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The attitude assumed by the angel of the covenant is very impressive 
instructive, and exemplary, his hand lifted up to heaven. This is the external attitude of solemnity most becoming the jurant when performing the act of religious worship, the oath. Abraham, in the presence of the king of Sodom, used the same form appealing to the Lord, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis 14, verse 22. Kissing the book has no example in all the Bible. Hence, it is unquestionably of heathen and so of idolatrous origin and tendency. No Christian can thus symbolize with heathens without so far having fellowship with devils as really as in eating in their temples. 1 Corinthians 10.21 The matter of the angel's oath is that there should be time no longer. Here it is humbly suggested that our excellent translators are faulty as in chapter 4 verse 6 already noticed. Neither the original Greek text nor the coherence of the symbolic narrative will sustain or justify the version. John, like all pious people, when he heard the lion's voice, followed by the seven thunders, was filled with solemn awe, anticipating the coming dissolution of all things. It was not the only instance of his weakness and misapprehension, chapter 19, verse 10, nor is this infirmity peculiar to the Apostle John, for we find other disciples mistaking the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in their own power, excuse me, put in his own power. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 3. These Thessalonians had misrepresented the language of Paul in his first epistle to them when speaking of the end of the world, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, to relieve the anxieties of the Thessalonians relative to the apprehended and sudden coming of the Lord, Paul wrote again to correct their mistake. So it may be supposed that the angel interposed this solemn assurance to his servant John for the like purpose of allaying, allaying his forebodings. The words in the original literally translated stand thus, that the time shall not be yet. That is, the time of the end, as we read in Daniel 12, verse 9, shall not be till the seventh trumpet begins to sound. The phrase, time of the end, may signify either the final overthrow of Christian, anti-Christian power or the end of the world because of the resemblance between the two events. The plain and certain meaning, then, of the angel's oath is that the mystery of God shall be finished only by the work of the seventh angel. What this mystery is, we will discover in the following chapters. Indeed, it had been long before declared to the prophets, but still accompanied with comparative obscurity suitable to their time. For the word declared is expressive of glad tidings, being the same in origin and significance as that which we translate gospel, good news. Accordingly, our Savior directs his disciples in view of his appearing either to overthrow the Roman power or to judge the world in the following words of cheer. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Luke 21:28. To the prophet Daniel, the same event was attested with solemn solemnity. Daniel 12, verse 7. This is the period to which the suffering saints of God have been long looking forward to with believing and joyful hope. As Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day of appearing in our nature, and by faith saw it and was glad, so the covenanted seed of the Father of the faithful, in the light of prophecy, and by like precious faith, are favored with a view of the certain downfall, downfall of mystical Babylon. Verses 8-11 to 11. 
And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John is next directed by a voice from heaven or by divine authority to take and eat the open book. There is obvious allusion to a similar transaction in Ezekiel 3, verses 1 to 3. The prophet was a captive by the river Chebar in Babylon under the dominion of the first beast of Daniel, as John was in Patmos under that of the fourth beast, and both were favored and employed by the glorious head of the church in an eminent part of their ministry. The word is not bound when ministers are in confinement. The eating of the book represents the intellectual apprehension of the things which it contained. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Jeremiah 15:16. The speculative knowledge of the word of God, and especially of those parts that are prophetical, will afford pleasure to the human intellect, even though the mind be unsanctified. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21. But when the prophet gets a farther insight into the contents as containing lamentations and mournings and woe, like Ezekiel's role, the pleasure is converted into pain. A foresight of the sorrows and sufferings of Christ's witnesses causes grief to the Christian's sensitive heart. He weeps with them that weep by the spontaneous sympathies of a common and renewed nature. Sweet in the mouth as honey, but in the belly bitter as wormwood and gall. Upon the apostles digesting the little book, the angel interprets the symbolic action by the plain and extensive commission, Thou must prophesy again before, thy peop- before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This commission did not terminate with the ministry of the apostle, although he may be truly said to prophesy by the apocalypse to all nations till the end of the world. This is equally true, however, of all the inspired penmen of the Holy Scriptures. Psalm 45, verse 17. But John is to be considered here as the official representative of a living and faithful ministry on whom devolves the indispensable obligation to open and apply these sacred predictions to the commonwealth of nations, however constituted, authorities may be affected by them. And indeed, these messages will prove unwelcome to the immoral powers of the earth as in the days of old. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Chapter 11 The narrative of prophetic events was broken off at the end of the ninth chapter. The tenth chapter and the greater part of this, from the beginning to the thirteenth verse, inclusive, present appearances and actions quite foreign to the events which follow the sounding of the trumpets. Why is this, the thoughtful student of the apocalypse will naturally ask. Why is the regular series of the trumpets suspended? When the sixth trumpet, the second woe, has affected its objects, we naturally expect the seventh trumpet to sound, yet we are held in suspense till we come to the fourteenth verse of this chapter. Hitherto we have met with no similar interruption. Let us take a retrospective view. The seven epistles to the churches followed each other in regular succession. 
the seals in like manner followed successively successively and this is true of the vials chapter 16 we have seen that the object of the trumpets was the Roman Empire the fourth beast of Daniel's prophecy the same as the object of the judgment symbolized by the vials the final subversion and utter description of that beastly power was plainly revealed in the Babylonian monarch's dream Daniel 2:44, and the same event was afterward exhibited in vision to Daniel chapter 7 verses 11 and 26 now the first four trumpets had demolished imperial power in the western or Latin section and the next two by the Saracenic locust and the Euphratian horsemen had subverted the eastern or Greek section Rome and Constantinople were the capitals of the respective sections or members of the one empire under the first four trumpets by the northern barbarians and under the first two woes by the Mahometans both sections of the empire were overthrown the question now presses upon our attention where shall we find an object for the tremendous judgment to be inflicted by the third and last woe this question requires a solution it demands it and he who succeeds in the application of history to solve this apparent enigma in the apocalypse will be able to attain to a satisfactory a certain understanding of much that is yet to most readers as if the sealed book were to this day in the right hand of him that sitteth on the throne let us humbly attempt to solve this difficulty Daniel's fourth beast the Roman Empire is to be contemplated in diverse aspects as the varied symbols obviously require all know that Nebuchadnezzar's image is the same as Daniel's four beasts therefore the same thing is presented in different forms or aspects of course we are to view that object as presented we have seen that under the sixth seal chapter 6 verses 12 to 17 the Roman Empire underwent a revolution that is it was destroyed as to its pagan form the empire became Christian under Constantine history proves that Christianity degenerated under the reign of that monarch and his successors heresy idolatry and persecutions characterized the subsequent history of the empire then follows the judgments of the trumpets to vindicate the divine government and alleviate from time to time the sufferings of true Christians while the two woe trumpets are demolishing the fabric of idolatry and despotism in the east the deadly wound is healed in the west which had been inflicted by the first four trumpets ten horns are developed upon the beast's head and another little horn by all of which the saints suffer as had been predicted by Daniel chapter 7 verse 24 and of which we had intimation after the judgment of the second woe or sixth trumpet chapter 9 20 and 21 all the plagues which had been inflicted upon the people of Christendom under the, this trumpet left them still impenitent worshiping devils surely we may now see where the object of the third woe is to be found namely in the same Roman Empire now become anti-christian more than ever before to describe this anti-christian combination and present the unholy confederacy against the Lord and his anointed and so to justify the ways of God it was necessary to digress from the narrative of the trumpets we now proceed with our observations on the 11th chapter verses 1 to 2 and there was given me a reed like unto a rod and the angel stood saying rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein 
but the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty two excuse me under foot forty and two months this chapter verses one to thirteen gives the contents of the little book delivered to the apostle as in the tenth chapter it contains a brief description and prospective history of the true church of Christ for a period of twelve hundred and sixty years her conflicts with Daniel's fourth beast are here epitomized. As the scene is laid in the temple and ministry all along in the apocalypse, so there is probably a special allusion here to Ezekiel's vision 40 verse 5. At all times the Christian church is to be organized and all her ordinances to be administered by divine rule. Accordingly, we have here presented the actual condition of Christendom during the whole time mentioned above. The command to John from the angel is to be understood as from the Lord Jesus, Zion's only king to the gospel ministry. Long before the time of the transactions here predicted, the apostle John had gone the way of all the earth. The work here enjoined was to be performed by his legitimate successors. The reed is the symbol of the word of God. It is the same import as Zechariah's measuring line, chapter 2, verse 1 and to be used for the same purpose, to measure Jerusalem, the temple, for both are emblematical of the church of God. The temple, altar, and worshipers are emblems of the church. Her doctrines, worship, and membership, tried by the scriptures, the reed. There are Gentiles who worship in the outer court, treading underfoot both it and the city. These are formal, immoral, idolatrous professors of Christianity, they are rejected by God as reprobate and by his command to be cast out from the fellowship of his people, authoritatively excommunicated by those to whom Jesus Christ has given the key of discipline. Here then, at the disclosing of the contents of the little open book, it is manifest that John goes back from the sixth trumpet in the 17th century when the eastern section of the Roman Empire was subverted by the Ottomans and gives us another view of society and Christendom contemporaneously with the trumpets. It follows necessarily that the little book does not rank, as some imagine, under any one trumpet, much less does it comprehend all the remaining chapters of the Apocalypse, as others vainly suppose. This matter will receive increasing confirmation as we advance. Those who worship within the temple and those who worship without are evidently distinguished from each other, they differ in character tested by the word of God, in fellowship as authoritatively separated according to the rule of the same word. For whereas the Gentile worshippers are so numerous as to crowd both the outer court and the city, the measured worshippers are all included within the confines of the temple. Song of Solomon 4.12 Measuring is equivalent to the sealing of the servants of God in the seventh chapter. It imports that they are secured from the sins and plagues of their time. The period of the apostasy from God is fixed to forty and two months. According to Jewish mode of reckoning a day for a year, Numbers 14.34 and Daniel 9.24, the whole period is 1260 years. Each month has 30 days. Multiply 42 by 30 and we have 1260. The same period of time, not merely in an equal period, is otherwise expressed by the prophet Daniel thus, times, excuse me, time, times and a half. 
chapter 12, verse 7. That is 360, the number of days in the Jewish year, times, or 720, the days in two years, and half a time, or 180, the days in half a year. Now add these three numbers, 360, 720, 180, and the sum is 1260. Now see Daniel 4.25 where the word times means years and then a child may calculate these mystical numbers. Verse 3 And I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth while the nominal church, the outer court and the holy city would be trodden underfoot and the most eminent places would be filled with idolaters, infidels, hypocrites, and mercenary spirits. The true Christians grievously oppressed, the Lord will preserve a faithful few from defiling themselves with the prevailing abominations. These he claims and owns as his peculiar treasure, my witnesses. These have found that it was good for them to draw near to God when the multitude treacherously departed from him. The Lord Christ promises to sustain them in the midst of all their tribulations. The duration of their special work is the very same as that of treading of the holy city, a thousand two hundred and threescore days, twelve hundred and sixty years. In attempting to fix the beginning of this period, Daniel and John must be compared. Both treat of the same events and dates, and this gives the definitiveness to the interpretations. Daniel fixes these events to the fourth monarchy after it had been broken in pieces and the ten horns had arisen. Chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. So that we have both the geography and chronology determined by the prophets themselves. Hence it follows that we must date the beginning of the 1260 years after the first four trumpets. For by these the Western Roman Empire was dismembered or broken that the ten horns might appear. Then the little horn of Daniel rose after and among them, chapter 7, verses 20 and 24. All reliable expositors agree that the little horn is the papacy or the Romish church. This little horn is the special enemy of the saints of the Most High, and they are to be given into his hand, Daniel 7, 25. The first four trumpets subverted the Roman Empire in the west in the latter part of the 6th century. This event may weigh for the bishop of Rome in process of time to acquire a great accession of ecclesiastical power. The civil and ecclesiastical rulers, equally unscrupulous and aspiring, were at this period on terms of comparative intimacy and occasionally disposed to reciprocate good offices. Phocas, that's P-H-O-C-A-S, having waded through the blood of the citizens to supreme civil power in order to secure his position, declared Boniface III, Bishop of Rome, head of the Universal Church. This impious public act took place in the year 606. The Pope became also a temporal prince in 756. Now we cannot know with certainty which of these events nor indeed whether either of them marks the period in which the 1260 years began. Hence, we must remain at uncertainty as to the exact time when this most interesting period will end. Of all transactions recorded in history, however, that between Phocas and Boniface appears most like giving the saints into the hands of the little horn. 
At this juncture in particular, church and state conspire as never before to resist the authority of Jesus Christ, the mediator. Paul's man of sin had begun, excuse me, had been revealed in his time, 2 Thessalonians 2.6. Paganism had been abolished by formal edict throughout the Roman Empire and Christianity established as the recognized religion of the commonwealth. That which led it or hindered, that is, the pagan idolatry of the civil state, is taken out of the way, and nominal Christianity takes its place. This combination or alliance between church and state will be more clearly made known in the succeeding chapters of this book. Meanwhile, it is the immediate design of the little open book to give an epitome or outline of this unholy confederacy in the first thirteen verses of this chapter, the treading underfoot of the holy city by the Gentiles furnishes occasion for the witnesses to appear publicly against them. These pretended Christians, but real hypocrites, as will appear with increasing evidence as we perceived, have usurped the rights of Messiah's crown and grievously oppressed his real disciples. Against these outrages on the prerogatives of Christ and the rights of man, these witnesses lift their solemn protest. Their distinctive name, Witnesses, is familiar to everyone who searches the scriptures. Isaiah 43.10 and Acts 1.8 But witnesses who love not their lives unto the death are distinguished by the name of martyrs. Revelation 2.13, Acts 22.20 God has had his witnesses in all ages since the fall of Adam in defense of truth and holiness against error and ungodliness, but the specific work of these witnesses is to oppose the corruption of his two ordinances of church and state during the specified period of 1260 years. The existence of this complex system of civil and ecclesiastical tyranny and heresy in the holy purpose and sovereign providences of God calls for the public and uncompromising opposition of the two witnesses. We shall discover the two parties in more visible conflict hereafter and tracing the struggle to its issue, we shall find that like the more general and lasting warfare between the seed of the woman and that of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, it was a war, excuse me, it is a war of extermination. These witnesses are distinguished as part from the whole. Excuse me, let me read that again. These witnesses are distinguished as a part from the whole. All witnesses are not martyrs, but these are such. Verse 7 in chapter 20, verse 4. And here we are constrained to dissent from the opinion of some expositors who for sentiments we entertain profound respect. These two witnesses are supposed to be, are supposed by these eminent interpreters to differ as much from the 144,000 sealed ones, chapter 7, verse 4, as Elijah differed from the 7,000 in Israel in his time. Whereas we think the 144,000 and the two are the same identical company. See chapters 7, verses 4 through 8, 14, 1, 20, verse 4. It is evident that they are the same party and the whole of the party who are honored to reign with Christ a thousand years. Chapter 20, verse 4. They are two in number because one witness is not sufficient in law to establish any matter in controversy. Numbers 35, 30, and 2 Corinthians 13, 1. They are a small number compared with their opponents. Chapter 13, 3. Again, they are few but sufficient to confront and confute their two 
opponents. Chapter 13, 1 and verse 11. And finally, they are two that they may be assimilated to their predecessors. Verses 4 through 6. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks, answerable to Joshua and Zerubbabel, the representatives of the gospel ministry and a scriptural magistracy in their day, as seen by the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 4, verse 14. The official administrators of the divine ordinances of church and state require the oil of divine grace to qualify them for the discharge of their responsible duties to God and man. 1 Timothy 1 2, Titus 1 4, Psalm 72, verse 1. Thus were those public servants of God and of his people qualified who stood before the God of the earth, as Moses and Aaron in Egypt. Elijah and Elisha in Israel, to whom there is obvious allusion in the special work of these witnesses, 2 Kings 1, 10, 1 Kings 17, 1, Exodus 7, 17. Fire proceedeth out of their mouth, when from the scriptures they denounce just judgments upon the impenitent enemies of him whom they represent. They smite the earth with all plagues, when in answer to their prayers, vengeance comes upon anti-Christian communities, Luke 18:7 and 8. They turn waters into blood when through their effective agency the votaries of Antichrist are made the instruments of mutual destruction. And all this is made more clear in the symbolic vials, chapter 16. These witnesses prophesy not as being inspired, but because they and they only apply existing predictions of, to their appropriate objects so far as they receive light from him who is the light of the world. They are clothed in sackcloth because they sigh and cry for all the abominations of their time, subjected to oppression and excluded from kings' palaces, places of worldly honor, power, and emolument. This ends tape number five of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format, at a discount in our A to Z author listings. 
And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.